I've been starting to see is some sort of histories of podcasting through podcasts themselves that seem to be erasing any contributions that female podcasters have made to the field. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Riesmedell, and joining me from San Francisco is Jennifer Waits. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. And on today's show, we're going to dive into some early history in podcasting. And of course, for podcasting, that means the history is a decade or so old. But it's already sort of some forgotten history in a lot of ways. And it's, uh, it's of course, unfortunately forgotten history because, uh, I, mean, I mean, essentially because of sexism, wouldn't you say so, Jennifer? That is probably what I would say, Paul. <laughs> history is written by people and understood by people. And, and sometimes history does not provide a complete look at the entire story of, of a technology or a movement, or in this case, um, the beginning of podcasting. Yeah, and there are some people who are credited with uh, some of the foundational elements. And it's not that those people who are principally men did not accomplish things, but that there are some other people who are also very active at the same time whose names aren't heard, who are who are principally women. And that's we're going to talk a bit about that with our guest, Jennifer Highland Wong, who is a sound studies researcher. She's an historian um, and she's at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And what's really interesting about Jennifer Wong's perspective is that as an historian, she draws these amazing parallels with radio. Yeah. And I think, and television too, which is really interesting. And, and her her background was really in studying the daytime audience of all forms. So looking at daytime radio back in the very early days of radio. And I, I love how she makes connections between that research with the early days of women in podcasting, because there are a lot of parallels. And, and we often need this historical, this deep historical perspective, you know, because often what we're noticing has happened before. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that it's happening again in many cases, but I think it is important, you know, now uh, into the, you know, 13th or 14th year of podcasting as such that these histories are being uh, brought back up and that there are folks who are giving voice and helping to lend more publicity, if you will, to the female pioneers in this exciting uh, new media form. So let's go ahead and jump right into our interview with Jennifer Highland Wong. So we have Jennifer Highland Wong on the line via Skype from Toronto, and she is an adjunct professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, currently at a conference in Toronto. And and thanks so much for, for coming and joining us on Radio Survivor today. Oh, thank you for having me. We connected at the Radio Preservation Task Force Conference um, in the fall, which was an amazing collection of scholars talking about so many different topics. And, and I was fascinated by your presentation about the early history of women in podcasting. So mm -hmm. that was kind of the, the spark for inviting you on the podcast today. So 
I'd love to have some context from you about the role that women have played in podcasting and, and what percentage of podcasters are women and how that has kind of shaped up historically. Well, I kind of came to the project, interestingly, when I was looking at some early podcasts, I found a podcast from Julia Barton, who's um, a public radio editor, and um, and she had this great podcast called DTFD, and it, I don't know if we can swear on this program, <laughs> but the, the acronym is Doing the Dishes, and she did a podcast on Russian history and doing the dishes at the same time, and wow. sort of given my experience as a stay-at-home mom trying to balance academics you know with that um that occupation um, i was really fascinated by that whole topic um in general uh, early podcasting has been a fairly male preserve um something like 70 percent of all podcasters are men and interestingly enough i think about half of women uh half of the podcasting audience are are women and so it's clear like that, that they are not being served. Um, it seems that a lot of uh, attention has been focused on hobbyists, male hobbyists who developed uh, podcasts to kind of service and kind of build community with other um, kind of podcasters. And there really was a history of a lot of mommy bloggers, people who wrote blogs and developed those into podcasts. And so there have been many women um, podcasting, but we don't talk about them. We don't see them. Yeah. I, you know, we, I think you mentioned mommy blogger when you gave your presentation and and I've always been struck by that term as, you know, it feels somewhat patronizing. And yeah. and how, how does that affect then the understanding of, of these women podcasters, too? And I think it's... Um I agree with you. I do. I, uh, when I when I use that term, I think I'm uh, I'm referring to it more lovingly. <laughs> that I think it it involves it describes a, a sort of mode of life. What I'm seeing in my research so far about women podcasters is that podcasting is something they have to fit into their day. They have to fit into all the other responsibilities of their lives. Um, and so I would hear you know read quotes from some of these podcasters who would talk about um, how they. Um, edit their podcast while watching a soccer game in their car. They would um, uh, record their podcast on their bureau in their bedroom as they're folding laundry. Um, and uh, that term kind of mommy blogging, I think, encompasses all of the domestic responsibilities that women have and the way that podcasting is supposed to fit into them. Uh, and has to be worked in just like another job um, instead of being a sort of separate space. Got it. I mean, it's interesting because I know that your your academic background, you've looked a lot at daytime broadcast audiences. Is that part of what sparked this interest in in looking at female podcasters? Is it it's Absolutely. kind of that same space in a way? And I think I was, as an academic, I was frustrated because even after all of these years, you know, 2018, there's still very few people working in daytime radio, much less looking at daytime television. Um, and there's, uh, I was frustrated as a historian to look back and try to have to uncover these sort of hidden histories of female early broadcast, TV broadcast early uh, sort of radio pioneers. And my feeling was, why can't we start talking about female podcasters 
while we're still in this moment, while we're a decade and a half away, as opposed to, uh, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 years? You know, is there a way that we can save some of this stuff or speak to these women and find out their true history so we don't have to write that revisionist history? Uh, because what I've been starting to see is some sort of histories of podcasting through podcasts themselves that seem to be erasing any contributions that female podcasters have made to the to the field. Yeah, that's that's pretty upsetting. Um, so so maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of these pioneering podcasters. You know, are are you working to try to establish? you know, to add, add these stories, you know, back into the conversation. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think there's a couple of different efforts underway. Um, and I must say, I'm not conversant in all of, all of the aspects, but I know that uh, Eric, professors Eric Hoyt um, and Jeremy Morris at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, they have gotten a uh, Wisconsin 2020 grant and a national grant to help um, develop a uh, repository for podcasts for researchers. It's called Podcast RE. So I know they're undergoing some efforts to try to figure out how can they collect and archive podcasts. And I'm certainly going to funnel any of my any of my information, you know, to them to kind of create a repository for scholars. Um, and I think that uh, Dana Garber merged. Margie, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, um, who is also at the University of Wisconsin, is in charge of a, a women podcasting group. And she's also participated, I think it's a Mellon grant uh, to help preserve female podcasts. So there's a lot of great work being done sort of right now at this moment to try to collect this information. But I also wanted to make sure that in addition to collecting it, we're analyzing it and try to figure out what's happening. Jennifer Highland Wong, this is Paul Reismandel. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, to kind of put some dates on this. You know, if we're sure. talking about early podcasting, um, you know, you sort of mentioned uh, an early show that that got your attention was by a woman named uh, Julia Barton. About about when was that, or, or what are the sort of first dates we're that talking about? That particular podcast was DTFD was in 2015, um, but I would say the other ones that have kind of popped out at me. Um, there's a great podcast called Craftlet. Um, and Craftlet started, I believe, um, in 2006. Um, and it has over 400 episodes. And it's a really fascinating podcast. Uh, some of the first podcasts were, you know, extensions of blog posts, right? Food and crafts and knitting and things like that. Um, and so this woman, Heather Ordover, uh, developed this podcast, Craft Lift. And her idea was she's involved in the notion of cognitive anchoring. So like knitting and doing simple tasks um, and being able to concentrate more when you do that and learn more. And so the concept of her podcast is that she would we read a chapter of an audiobook a week for women who like to craft and knit hmm. and then developed this over the course of 400 episodes um, as a place for some chat at the beginning. Uh, she reads the audio back audiobook chapter, and then does a little post-book talk and closing. So the emphasis, interestingly enough, of a lot of these early broadcasts seems to be this kind of community building, like mm. establishing this like friendly spaces for people to communicate with each other and share like interests. An interesting thing you didn't mention there is is that they were not made to, uh, it didn't sound like these folks made podcasts to turn a buck. Like they weren't expecting to become stars and weren't expecting to become the no. next uh, big entrepreneur. 
Yeah, I think I think we have to be careful <laughs> because I think, you know, like uh, certainly we all they all put out that kind of idealistic sort of rhetoric, right, um, uh, at the beginning. Uh, I know that for, for Heather Ordorov, I don't think that that was part of the, the concept at the beginning, but I know that now that she has a premium subscription package and she has, you know, we can buy, you know, kind of products from her and things like that. So they've sort of evolved. There's a, a podcast out there right now called She Podcasts. Um, and there's two women, Elsie Escobar and Jessica Kupferman, who uh, have developed uh, this podcast as a sort of support community for women podcasters. And they're, uh, they offer themselves out as consultants for female podcasters and how to develop your audience or how to market yourself. Um, and they even offer a podcasting school for women that you can take a course uh, with them to learn how to fit podcasting into your life and to kind of encourage people to do that. Both of these women, Elise Escobar was um, a yoga podcaster. She started in something like 2005. Um, and I think both Jessica Kupferman and Elsie Escobar are two women who are some of the inaugural members of the Academy of Podcasting. Very cool. It was making me think about, um, I went to a few blogger conferences and I think there were a lot of um, women bloggers at the events who who might've been doing it for fun and community building and others who, who had an eye towards sponsorship and business. And I would guess, you know, that that would be similar to, to early podcasters as well, that you had every, every, quite the range of people with expectations about whether or not this was going to become something that, you know, had financing attached to it. Right. And from what I'm seeing at the beginning, it was not necessarily altruistic. It was sort of like, I want to put out something meaningful in the world. I I want to find like-minded people. Um, I want to build community. And uh, it was that sort of impulse, I think, that started a lot of these. And at a certain tipping point, you realize, wow, could I, (laughs) could I, uh, you know, make a life, uh, you know, make an economic life with this, with this format. So what do you think some of the biggest misconceptions are about early women in podcasting? Uh, Strangely, one of the biggest misconceptions is the concept of, see if I say it this way, of talking while female. I think that uh, the notion that uh, the recent controversies over women's voices on podcasting like Vocal Fry and Upspeak, they are an absolute, uh, they're they're a repetition of exactly what people were saying in the 1920s about women in early radio. So as a historian, I see all these parallels, how the radio amateurs experimented with the medium, tried to develop communities, uh, and did develop communities, and the ways in which institutionally their opportunities were closed off as radio professionalized and nationalized in the mid to late 1920s. And I'm seeing the same thing happen here. Um, And as a historian, you're like, hey, look at what happened back there, <laughs> you know, the, the, the opportunities for women sort of closed off. Um, to give you an example, in, um, in the early 1920s, as radio was um, 
being experimented with and was such a was a local medium. Uh, women were involved in lots of different aspects of radio production. They were program uh, managers, studio directors. Sometimes uh, they were announcers and lecturers, and and involved uh, in some aspect in radio. Uh, by the mid 1920s, then when radio was becoming professionalized and networks. Um, started national networks started to form. Then suddenly there was a big debate about how appropriate was it for women to be on the air, and, and was it really appropriate for women's voices to be uh, out there in the public space? And I see that same conversation starting to happen around Upspeak and Vocal Fry. The idea that men don't, men and women don't want to hear women's voices on the air. Jennifer Hyland Wong, can you tell us more th- this controversy? Uh, I'm not sure everyone is familiar with these terms, yeah. vocal fry or, or upspeak. Like, what is this controversy that we're having right now? Well, it's kind of in the recent years, it's focused uh, largely along um, the Kardashian family, <laughs> um, talking about the way there's a tendency for young women to kind of draw out the end of the syllables at, the, at a sentence um, and the way in which that sort of uh, fries or like emphasizes the lower pitches of your voice, um, which people find, uh, some people find uh, kind of annoying or irritating. Um, and then also the idea of upspeak that at the end of sentences, um, women in particular may tend to raise their voices at the end uh, in order to uh, uh, speak their, speak their, make a statement, but say so in a way that they don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they, they want to make sure that, that, uh, the person that they're speaking to will accept almost like showing a fear that the person will accept their, um, their statement or their proclamation. And this is an active discussion in radio and podcasting. I mean, so I understand, uh, with regard to the Kardashians as, as television stars, but I, I guess uh, I want to hear yeah. how this, well, how this is going on in podcasting and, and radio. Isn't both, <laughs> both the vocal, uh, habits, the vocal fry and the upspeak are both, um, generally associated with younger voices. So it's absolutely a, it's, a, it's a younger woman's burden to be mm-hmm. to be accused of. Yeah, and I think there's been a, a This American Life had a podcast episode a few years ago, um, all on the idea of women's voices and talking about vocal fry. Uh, sometimes Ira Glass gets uh, a little bit of um, uh, guff for his use of vocal fry, and <laughs> probably not an, not as much as other women do, but he he also um, has that sort of vocal tendency um, and gets a little bit of guff. And I think that it's just, the controversy is, um, there is always this irritation with the sound of women's voices mm-hmm. on radio or podcasting. Um, and there are different rationales developed at different historical moments for that. Um, but there is something um, inherently threatening about a woman speaking in her own voice, in her own style, in her own way, over podcasts or radio airwaves. We touched on that a little bit with Jennifer Stover on the podcast um, a few episodes back where we talked about how women's voices are understood and and sometimes the desire by some folks to control voices and the style of how mm-hmm. we speak. Um, so that's right in line. And it's, it's great to have a historical perspective on that. 
Jenny Stover's work is absolutely amazing. Um, I'm reading her, her Sonic Colorline book right now, and it's really informing some of the ways in which I'm looking at, um, at these aspects. I, um, I had to put it into context. I gave a paper at the conference that I'm at right now, SNS, uh, on uh, an early radio um, program called Clara Lou and M, which came out of uh, WGN Chicago and was picked up by NBC. And it was absolutely fascinating how um, my, my, my research was sort of like how these women had to adopt these kind of cartoonish uh, voices, giggles and coos and, you know, very much like the sort of Betty Boop olive oil kind of character. Um, and even though these three women wrote every line of their dialogue, performed their dialogue, produced the show, created the show, um, and was commercially sponsored, incredibly popular, even to have those women um speak in their own voice on a radio program was threatening. The, the point of the radio program was these, uh, they played three Midwestern housewives who misunderstood and misinformed the radio public about current events. So they would read the newspaper and talk about current events. It was an example of sort of political commentary on primetime radio and a, that was absolutely uh, revolutionary. But in order to do so, they had to pretend to be a Betty Boop, an olive oil. Uh, 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 they had adopted this sort of nasal twang of a Midwestern lower class housewife in order to even speak on the air. That's the voice of Jennifer Highland Wong, an adjunct professor at UW-Madison. And we're also joined by Jennifer Waits. And they met at the Radio Preservation Task Force. We're talking with Jennifer Wong here on Radio Survivor about the history of women in early podcasting. So we're talking about the um, the early aughts, right? Or the mid-aughts. And then the parallels, really, with yes, the history right. of radio. And you just mentioned SCMS. That's the Society of Cinema Media Studies, the conference that, you, that Jennifer Highland Wong is currently attending, where you were talking about this uh, fascinating show. What was the name of the show? Clara Lou and M. Clara Lou and M. It reminds me a little bit of here on Radio Survivor, uh, Way back in the, the, the single-digit episodes, I believe, Matthew Lazar on an early episode of Radio Survivor brought in some history where the movie star Mae West, prior to her film career, had appeared on, on the radio doing a sketch, uh, a sketch, I believe, that was written by a man and was approved by the censors. But the way that she read the jokes mm -hmm. got her in deep, deep trouble with the censors. It was her voice. It was a woman's voice adding just a little bit of um, sexy inflection, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, say, uh, that, that got her banned from CBS uh, for life. I believe it was a lifetime ban, according to Matthew Lazar, way back in the early history of radio, uh, just for using her own voice uh, to tell jokes. Um, Absolutely. Jennifer, I teach that in class every time. Well, I use that that particular vocal clip in class to kind of talk about the ways in which standards and practices in the industry try to uh, maintain certain standards. Uh, and even though the, all they can do is uh, approve the script, there's a danger, right? There's a danger. There's a thrill in the fact that uh, she could read it any way that she wanted. And she did so really lasciviously. And, um, and they reacted really strongly. I think that's around 1934. Um, when I'm talking about these women, uh, they started their radio show in 1930. Mm. Uh, and, and in 1933 were, um, 
I hope this is not too much of a tangent. Okay. <laughs> in, in 19, no. In, in 1933, um, these women were so popular um, as radio stars that they were invited to go to FDR's inauguration. So the Democratic National Committee and their sponsor, who was Colgate Pamela Pete, worked together to bring these three women from Chicago to Washington on a whistle-stop train tour, and their job was to... Um, uh, talk about the festivities, talk about the inauguration, and send that back to the housewives around the country. Uh, and the fascinating part about this uh, was that they had planned seven hours of, you know, kind of like wall-to-wall coverage of uh, FDR's inauguration on this particular day on March 4th, 1933. Uh, they were the only commercial program and the only female voices mm. in that wow. In, in a list of Boat Carter and Robert Trout and H.V. Kaltenborn and all of these sort of imminent CBS and NBC newsmen, they were the only people, uh, only female voices to kind of comment on the inauguration that day. But they had to do so in character. Um, the three women technically weren't invited. Their characters were invited. And wow. they had to, to uh, report on uh, what they were seeing at the parade and evenings balls uh, as if they were three Midwestern housewives, kind of bewildered by the bustle of the city streets and things like that. And how can we listen um, if people are interested in listening to some of those shows? Uh, is there access to them? A little bit. Um, the Internet Archive has, um, I would say, like a dozen or so episodes. There are... Um, uh, a few episodes available at Northwestern University. Uh, Northwestern University is sort of where each of these three women came from. Uh, and they have uh, papers, of, they have all of the scripts um, for um, the entirety of this broadcast at Northwestern University. But the, uh, the audio is a little bit harder to get, but you can find it on the Internet Archive. Jennifer Highland Wong, um, we're here on Radio Survivor today talking about the history of early podcasting and women's contributions to early podcasting. And you had mentioned earlier today on the program that um, you feared that that history was being erased. I wonder mm -hmm. if you could explain uh, what you mean. Sure. Well, what I'm seeing uh, uh, around 2015, uh, sort of right after the success of Serial, uh, so a podcast, you know, produced and managed by by women, would seem in this kind of discussion about we need to have more women's voices in podcasts and sort of uh, this sort of urge for diversity. I think um, in uh, a few years earlier, Roman Mars had done a Kickstarter campaign in order to specifically to develop women's voices on the air. So in the light of uh, a sort of what seemed like the start of an increase in women's voices, uh, women who were podcasting early on, 2005 to 2010, developing these kind of small, intimate podcasts, um, started to complain uh, about the excessive focus on, uh, in particular, NPR female voices. And the uh, they feared uh, that these women uh, feared that all of their 
that they had tried to develop a certain kind of community and that iTunes, particularly as a gatekeeper, mm. was blocking off um, opportunities for small, independent podcasters and that they saw this sort of distinction starting to grow between podcasters which they saw, you know, sort of as uh, people who use uh, podcasting to build a community with no corporate intermediary with procasters, the term they, they developed, which saying that these were these were people who's um, like NPR who was using podcasting as a distribution system to sort of repurpose radio audio for on demand consumption. And how how would iTunes be hurting uh, some of these early podcasts from getting their audience? Because iTunes uh, generally uh, makes some podcasts more accessible than other podcasts. And these smaller sort of mom and pop kind of podcasts um, have a difficulty uh, competing without the institutional support that something like an NPR podcast has. Um, and so it's sort of like the difference. I think um, I think uh, Heather Ordover, when she was speaking about this, made the comparison between her ser or her podcast and podcast serial is saying one's a Ferrari and one's a go kart. They both get you in the same direction, but one gets there a lot faster and a lot nicer. And so feeling that um, for women who were involved in sort of NPR, they were they had this incredible institution support to make sure that their voices were heard and that the voices of women who are trying to fit podcasting into their domestic life um, and as a hobby uh, were being written out of the history. And in the... Um, there was a manifesto that Heather Ordover published in 2015, sort of after the success of Serial, uh, kind of complaining about being erased from the history books. She even made reference to the radio amateurs of the 1920s, saying what's ha what's happening to them is what's, you know, what happened to them is what's happening to us right now. And Jennifer Highland Wong, can you talk about why iTunes matters? Why does iTunes have so much power as far as uh the world of podcasting, even early podcasting. It's one of the main places, main places that people find podcasts, a directory of podcasts. Um, and certainly in recent years, there have started to be some competitors to it. Uh, but uh, iTunes is the, I, I believe it's the largest program directory for podcasts. And its search mechanism is, if you've ever tried to do that, is not... <laughs> is is not uh, is not great. You don't uh, you get certain uh, certain podcasts are privileged. Mm. Uh, more popular podcasts are going to be privileged, and it's a little bit harder to find what you want to find. And so I think um, iTunes sees itself as a gatekeeper, as a way to um, allow people to get the most popular podcasts uh, uh, easier and faster. But that does have a tendency to sort out what are the important podcasts, what are the not important podcasts, and to erase a lot of people's voices from that conversation. So another another thing I remember from your talk, Jennifer Wong, was you made a point about this rhetoric about podcasting being an extension of blogging versus podcasts that were seen as the future of radio. And I thought that was a really powerful way of of diminishing certain types of podcasts so how where was this rhetoric happening who who's making these distinctions would you say 
Well, I think that the distinction first started to be made by um, some of these bloggers like um, Heather Ordover, who began practice. I know Heather Ordover and Elsie Escobar spoke on a couple of different podcasts about um, their their feelings of getting erased. I think some of the um, early histories of podcasting tend to focus on Adam Curry and his contribution uh, to, and people seem to know that, um, but there were women there too <laughs> in those early years, uh, and they're not being talked about. So I think that that's the um, like the kind of context. I think that the procaster um, uh, argument is really developed from within that community. Um, it is not really being posed externally uh, by, say, academics or critics. And going back into your history, ha- have you been a podcaster or do you have a radio past? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I just, um, I'm, I mostly fell into this study. Um, I was more of a, um, a TV person. That's why kind of why I came to UW to study television. Uh, and uh, Michelle Hilmes was my advisor. And she, while I was at, at University of Wisconsin, published her book, Radio Voices. And that was just a turning point for me. It was absolutely fascinating because everything that you want to understand about television uh, was talked about, discussed, institutionalized uh, in radio. And so I'm kind of particularly fascinated with origins and and so how everything develops. And I found that sort of like my radio study, like I understand aspects of podcasting or new media, um, you know, or Twitter, you know, uh, through my knowledge of early radio. Yeah, I really love how how you incorporate um all of your knowledge from the 20s and 30s and radio and how you link that to to podcasting. I think that's fascinating. And, and I think we need historical context increasingly, you know, across so mm-hmm. many different fields of study. So I really appreciate that. And, and what's, what's sort of true is that every time a new piece of technology, a new form of media comes out, everyone has this sort of utopian, optimistic sense that this is the medium that's going to change our culture. Uh, and um, what I'm seeing over time is that, uh, you know, just as what happened to the radio amateurs who experimented and really invented the concept of broadcasting and radio in the 20s and 30s, it's exactly what's happening to all of the different people, male and female, who have been experimenting with the form. Uh, in podcasting and are slowly being taken over by corporate interests because we haven't changed the power structures or the institutional structures or the economic incentives. Um, And with that not changed, uh, you're going to see, I I fear that you will see like a further corporatization of podcasting, which of course broadens its scope and gets it to more people. And I, I love podcasting as a medium. I listen to, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I absolutely love it. Uh, but there's lots of voices that get lost when that happens. Uh, Jennifer Highland Wong, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor today. And, and I really have enjoyed hearing about your work. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for bringing us that interview with uh, Jennifer Highland Wong. And as you mentioned up front, Uh, You met uh, Jennifer Wong as part of your work with the Radio Preservation uh, Task Force. And part of that work is really in that same kind of uh, representation uh, arena where you and the folks on the task force are trying to make sure that lots of aspects of radio's history are well represented. And in fact, that's something that 
that you do on the task force, right, Jennifer? Yeah, and that's that's part of the reason why there are a number of different caucuses on the task force to ensure that a number of scholars and researchers and archivists are thinking about radio and voices that may have been overlooked. So my emphasis has been on college radio, educational radio, and community radio. There are other people looking at things like activist radio, feminist radio, um, LGBTQ radio. And so so Jennifer Wong's work fits fits right into that in thinking about radio and podcasting and archiving. And we already have challenges with archiving recent digital history, you know, like the early history of podcasting. So, so that's on the agenda is, is to save these sorts of, of programs that often are lost in this digital first, you know, items that we have in our culture that started out digitally. A lot of those early materials are, are lost. So we need to make an effort now to think about how to preserve this very recent history that women are, you know, often being erased from that narrative about the early days of podcasting. So it's, there's so much complexity in, in how to preserve materials, even recent materials. That's right. Because with the born digital stuff, if I recorded a podcast directly into my computer, which is how most people do it, then it's up to whomever does that to make sure that it stays on that hard drive, or maybe it's written to a CD that gets put on a shelf. But with a lot of radio preservation, these things were on tapes. And for all of its problems that that, that tape has, um, it's a physical object. <laughs> and it has kind of a lifespan. And the thing about a tape is maybe part of it gets chewed up but you can splice it together and maybe get half of it, right? <laughs> that that there's a lot like with a physical object, there's a lot of opportunities to to both archive uh, and maybe copy it over to a fresh tape or copy it over obviously to digital and to preserve the asset itself. And with so much of this digital stuff, I think almost anybody who's used a computer has lost a file or had something corrupted, whether it be like a thumb drive or a hard drive or even the memory in your phone. And that's it. Unless a lot of effort was put in very upfront to, to duplicate it. And when we're talking about something you might've recorded uh, 10 or 14 years ago, who knows? I mean, I'm certain anyone again, who has like a digital camera or tries to keep family photos, you realize that, well, where's that photo we took <laughs> you know, of, of, of our daughter's fifth birthday 10 years ago. Exactly. And, you know, and it takes up a lot of storage space. So, you know, you might have things saved on, you know, a laptop that, that has died or on a backup device that is buried somewhere. Um, in, in my own case, doing college radio for many years, I have many more cassette tapes of my, mid 1990s radio shows than I have saved digital files of, um, of my radio shows since say 1999. So, yeah. it, you know, many of us, many people worry that this period, you know, maybe around the turn of the millennium, it might be harder for us to access audio and, and photos from that era because the files have degraded or we didn't save them in the first place, you know, anywhere permanent. So it, 
it definitely it definitely makes me appreciate um, all of my mom's carefully curated photo albums of physical photos, you know, because my childhood is, you know, the childhood photos are, are there in a physical place where I can look at them. Yeah. And it's relatively trivial to print a photo, whether you own a printer yourself or you, or you go to an online service or even go to your local drugstore probably still does it for you where you can bring in your memory card and print it out. But like, what are you going to do with that podcast? (laughs) I mean, I guess you could burn a CD uh, and that probably though will not last 50 or 60 years. It probably won't last as long as that paper photo will. And, or, or are you going to, are you going to make a vinyl record out of it? I mean, it really, it really begs the question. It gets to be quite monumental. And I've been very assiduous about keeping most of my radio output over the years. And I have almost all of it. And I've documented some of it at radiosurvivor.com where I've been digitizing old cassettes, or I used to record to mini disc. Uh, for a good 10 or 12 years when that was a popular format. And I've been busy importing those into my computer into so I can create WAV files and MP3 files. But And then I use online backup and I've got multiple hard disks constantly in rotation. I work really hard, but it's it's actual effort. <laughs> it's not set it and forget it. It's not put things into even like a little fireproof box and put it in your closet. It is, it's very active and I cannot really understand why uh, a lot of this history is incredibly volatile. Um, and, and, well, yeah, you're, and, and you're talking about not just podcasts, but radio too. Right. And, and not every producer or every station, you know, is, is, goes to the effort of, of saving these files. So, um, you know, we're just going to have sort of a portion of things that, you know, a portion of people are as meticulous about it as you are. Yeah. And, I, and I'm hoping maybe uh, companies, you know, you know, the pro podcasters, uh, perhaps paying more attention to it in part because they're, they're kind of monetizable assets, if you will. But even, you know, uh, independent producers, you know, and, and I, that's a place where maybe places like uh, the Public Radio Exchange or Pacifica's Audioport, which are two platforms where producers can share their work with stations and stations can kind of use it as an audio marketplace. Um, I hope that those organizations, I don't know whether they are or not, are keeping backup plans going so that at the very least, if an independent producer produced a little uh, segment on something and uploaded it there and they lose their files, that the finished file may persist there uh, for quite some time. But I don't even know don't even know if that's the case. Yeah. Um, well, and as you're mentioning the pro podcasters, that that was another part of our conversation with Jennifer Wong that I thought was really interesting was this distinction between hobbyists and professional podcasters and, and this tension that, that actually may exist between those two groups. Um, you know, particularly with, attention and and podcasting getting a lot of attention in recent years and coming on people's radar increasingly because of these professionally done podcasts and, and that that can end up making the early podcasters and the hobbyist podcasters, it can make them feel like their story and their contributions have been diminished um, in light of, in light of these podcasts that are of an entirely different nature. You know, I think that's something that happens when you have these moments of professionalization. I think we saw it with blogging. Um, We're seeing it, I think, to some extent with YouTube in a lot of that way, because of the fact that 
the boundary between a hobbyist and professional podcaster is very fluid. A lot of people who have very popular podcasts now started them as hobbies, whether it's a show like Lore, which now you know has spawned a book and has spawned a uh, television series on Amazon Prime, uh, a show uh, like Welcome to Night Vale, which is very, very popular, but was really started by sort of unemployed actors looking for something to do, right? People who did not have pre-existing fame uh, and is now a very successful enterprise. Uh, and it's not always clear what, how does one, why does one cross that boundary? I think that often is part of that. And what's true of early blogging, you know, the bloggers who, who had been doing it a long time and felt like they never got any credit. And then some, for, for any number of reasons, were able to turn them into, you know, kind of full blown, what we would call platforms. Right. And it's not always clear who, who gets to cross that boundary. And I don't think it still is. Right. <laughs> but I think we've seen this sort of action before, you know, I, I work in podcasting. Uh, so, you know, I'm very intimately familiar with the business of podcasting. I work for Midroll Media, which owns Stitcher and owns the Earwolf Network. We produce podcasts. We help uh, a lot of podcasters sell advertisements. And so, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with attention um, on kind of a daily basis. And you know, to, to an extent, you know, I, 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 not just because it's my business and how I make my paycheck, but as someone who's also been in community media for uh, close to 30 years, I push back a little bit on the sort of the sort of I, I don't want to say sour grapes, but maybe that's the right word for it. For some folks feeling like, well, we don't get credit. And I've been doing this a long time because of the fact that uh, to some extent, right, when you start out in a niche medium, you know, and that, 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 that does not have mainstream popularity, which I think is what we could say about podcasting uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, you didn't have a lot, of, you didn't have a lot of popularity then either. It felt different. I'm certain because you had a smaller audience and whenever you have a, it's, it's sort of a, a, a bigger fish in a smaller pond at that time. And what's happened is the pond has gotten significantly bigger and a lot more big fish have moved in. Right. <laughs> and I think it feels different. But I wonder, because I can't say this definitively, but I can't say necessarily that, therefore, the audience opportunity, the opportunity to to reach and communicate with people has diminished. Uh, it just may be that also when we watch the fish get bigger, our expectations change. It's something Eric and I have talked about several times on the podcast, Eric Klein, you know, that people get outsized expectations because you think, oh, uh, you know, this, this American lifestyle show or something, which, which arguably has hundreds of thousands of, of listeners any week to its podcast, uh, that that's the sort of measure when maybe it used to be, if you had 500 people listening, you're like, Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's incredible. Right. And then, yeah, you're right. Like setting expectations and then what is what people consider a podcast to be. And if your entry point to what is a podcast is a podcast that's very expensive to produce with high production value and produced by a major company. If that's your entry point, you're going to have a different perspective on podcasts than if your entry point is say more of a niche podcast um, that's, that's targeted at uh, a smaller audience and, and maybe doesn't have the financing behind it. So yeah, your perspective will be different, you know, how you end enter into the podcast listening world. And I think it's important to remember 
and this is true of radio. This is true of community radio. It's true of college radio as much as it's true of podcasting. Don't let that iTunes front page sway you too much, meaning that the charts there and the, uh, you know, the curation there, it, there's a certain bias. And I'm not criticizing the bias per se. Um, you certainly heard Jennifer Wong uh, talk about it in, in our interview, but to understand that, that it's true, that there is a bias there and that there are hundreds, if not thousands of very popular podcasts that may not be well represented there and whose audiences don't necessarily even go to like an Apple podcast or iTunes to find the shows, whether they're way into uh, sort of uh, sports betting, <laughs> right? Uh, or fantasy sports or their way into computer network technologies or knitting. Uh, there's some very popular, I would call successful podcasts that are sort of on the margins there, but podcasting in a lot of ways is it, it serves those margins. Well, the periphery well, and to not be discouraged if there are people you want to communicate with in the same way you could say about having a Tumblr or Instagram or a blog, right? Uh, there's still tremendous amount of opportunity and there's a lot of very people doing these things. It's a matter of what do you consider successful? And if what you consider successful is I want to work for Ira Glass, that is one definition that's different, or I want to communicate effectively with people with similar interests as I, that's a, that's a different measure. Um, and, and to not lose that perspective. Yeah, exactly. But I think to our original point, uh, it is important that these histories and these accomplishments aren't simply written out also, right? What we're in a wonderful time in a certain way that so many people can communicate so broadly via the internet and all these different types of platforms whether it's podcasting or blogging or through photography or video um, that there's, we're able to populate that picture so much more richly, right. With so much greater resolution uh, in a way that, that just was not true 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, or even to some extent, 25 years ago, that it really does uh, make it a more difficult and sophisticated and complex task to archive and write the history. It just means you have to have more histories, I suppose, right? More people exploring more histories like Jennifer Wong does. Exactly. And, and I think this should really be an invitation. You know, I hope this is an invitation to people to work on preserving early podcasts and, and write about it. it. Like, and write about it. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's those stories that get written and published and just on the web, uh, you know, could be someplace like radio survivor. If someone would like to write for us, by the way, uh, drop us a line podcast at radiosurvivor.com because it does get published and it is out there and you know, someone may find it. Uh, so I agree with you completely there, Jennifer. And this is radio survivor. The sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reeswindell. With me is Jennifer Waits. And uh, in a few minutes we have left on today's program, uh, Jennifer, I thought we could dive into some recent stats about podcasting that come Ooh. from the Edison Research and Triton Annual uh, Infinite Dial Survey. It's a nationwide survey of people's listening habits the audio people consume and are aware of, and it's eagerly anticipated each year by podcasters, certainly 
because it's one of the longest running surveys of this sort that, in, that has included podcasting. They've been asking questions about podcasting since about 2006. So it's a really good longitudinal data. But the big number that everyone waits around for is uh, the percentage of people who've listened to a podcast in the last month, right? So podcast listenership, that's the big one. And as we were sort of talking about, you know, podcasting in the mainstream versus sort of the fringe of the underground, um, it's important to kind of circle back and see that according to Edison and Triton, uh, 26% of the American population, I think that's 13 and up, no, sorry, 12 and up, 12 years old 12 and up, um, have listened to a podcast in the last month. That's 73 million people. I mean, that's a lot of people, but it's still far from a majority of Americans. Right. Um, you know, I was also interested to hear that 64% were familiar with the term podcasting, but also that many people don't really know what it is. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, we talk about this on, on radio survivor, the, these definitions too, you know, mm -hmm. what, and these blurry definitions. So if, what is a podcast, what is a radio show and how do people understand these things? Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, this is, this is of course an interesting time to be in, in podcasting and to be in audio. I, I do think that there is a growth in people using audio of all sorts. So it includes music, it includes audio books, um, it includes podcasts of all sorts. Uh, a lot of talk in the industry about the smart speakers, which is something we talked about a number of episodes ago with uh, Brian Edwards Teekert, who authored kind of a white paper study on it. He is the morning host at KPFA in uh, Berkeley, California. And um, because, you know, these are things like the Amazon Echo or the new Apple HomePod, uh, because it's an audio oriented device is something you could talk to and simply say, you know, uh, Hey Alexa, you know, please play me this American life or Hey Alexa, please play me the newest episode of lore or something like that. And that the people who get them really get addicted to them and end up listening to a lot more audio. So I do think, you know, while we look at that and say, well, you know, only, you know, still less than 30% of the population, uh, is a regular podcast listener. Of course, what that says is boy, what, What's exciting then is that there's so many more people to come in, right? <laughs> the growth opportunities are wonderful for anyone doing this, whether you're doing it as a hobby, whether you're doing it uh, as, as sort of an adjunct to your main thing, or whether you, you're making your living as a podcaster or hope to. Uh, the growth potential, I think, is amazing. Um, well, yeah, and it, and it seems like um, some of the biggest growth was among younger people, yeah. and some of the highest listening was on smartphones. So you combine both of those elements and, and it, you know, it's, it makes sense to anticipate that there will be growth. And, and that's great news for uh, college broadcasters, for community broadcasters, or for folks who are interested in community communications and media altogether. Uh, because it's still relatively easy to get in and start a podcast and, get out there and start communicating with people at, at a very grassroots level. And I think podcasting still does this, uh, really well. And you know, it's a fluid boundary 
there isn't just radio and podcasting. Certainly there's lots of podcasts that are making on the radio, lots of radio shows that are making on a podcast. Radio Survivor is a show that started as a podcast, but now is heard on about 12 different FM stations around the country, plus uh, some Part 15 AM stations, plus some internet stations. And it's all just audio, right? And, and in the same way, I think people think about often Netflix is TV now, right? It's not a separate thing. It's TV in the same way that ABC is TV. Um, and increasingly when people are watching it on their computers or on their little set top boxes, um, there's not a lot of difference between it. And I think that's where we're going with audio that you know, podcasting is, is, is radio on demand. It's audio on demand, just like, uh, just like a audiobook, and also just sort of like your radio. And often I sort of explain it that way to people who, who are less familiar to say, no, it's just really radio on demand <laughs> and yeah. you need to have an app for it, or you can find it on a website, but it's no more difficult to get a podcast than it is to, to get Orange is the New Black, right. Or to get HBO for that matter. So I have, I have a quirky question for you about this study. There was a, there was a stat that I found interesting and it was something I'd never thought about doing before but I believe they said 19% of people said that they increased the speed of their podcast to listen to it faster. Yes. And I had no idea that this was something that people did, um, nor do I really know how one would do that. So, you it's know, since I know- built into all the major podcast apps. You can listen, uh, you can speed it up. Yep. <laughs> and some do it really well. There's one called Overcast that has its own proprietary algorithm that keeps things pretty comprehensible while also speeding it up. And in others, it just speeds it up. But yep, people really do that. <laughs> so these are, you know, listeners who are trying to consume maybe a lot of episodes quickly. So yeah. they speed up the listening. Exactly. Fascinating. Yeah, especially people who are way into like three hour podcasts, you know, ones that long conversations. People do it with audiobooks too. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So then this is something, you know, with traditional terrestrial radio, you know, you could not speed up what you're no. hearing. You have to, you have to settle in for the long haul. And people don't speed up video either. Like you don't really speed up movies. Right. <laughs> like if you hit fast forward, you can't hear anything. Although fun fact, uh, movies on television are often sped up. There are these crazy algorithms they use to speed up and fit like a two hour movie or like a two hour, 20 minute movie into like a hour and 55 minutes of television. Hmm. I definitely notice that in the credits sometimes where. Yeah, that's really where they speed up. But they're, yeah, that speeds up other things. Plus, you know, of course, they cut out stuff not appropriate for television. But yes, I'd love to wow. know. Is anyone out there speed listening to Radio Survivor? I know. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And of course, if you want to learn more about anything we've talked about on today's show, go to our website, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 135, and you can find those show notes, of course. Uh, if you listen as a podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the show. We're available at every major podcast app, uh, from TuneIn to Apple Podcasts to Stitcher and beyond. And we are on great radio stations across the country. To find our affiliates, go to radiosurvivor.com. And this is a listener and reader-supported enterprise Learn how you can help us keep doing what we do. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Jennifer, thank you so much for uh, joining us 
on, uh, on this really, really fun episode and for making that connection with uh, Jennifer Wong. Definitely. Thanks for appreciating radio history. <laughs> Man, do I ever. How could someone not? And thank exactly. you, everyone, for spending another hour with us. We look forward to being with you again next week.